The problem with being told to bend the knee, raise the fist, and jump through the hoop is that it demoralizes you. It makes you a smaller person inside. You think you're doing a little thing, but you're not, because you know you could be something more than the person that has to display whatever party headquarters tells you to display this week. That's what totalitarian movements across history always knew. You grind people down and make them agree to lies because you will then be able to make them do anything. Douglas Murray, September 2020. This is how liberty dies. Welcome to Liberty Dies with Thunderous Applause. I'm your host, Scott, with Uncle Ian. For today's matchup, we are in France. We've got heavy hitters in the tournament, Charlemagne against Napoleon Bonaparte. Liberty Dies with Thunderous Applause is a history podcast obsessed with history's biggest dictators. We've created a knockout competition to determine the single most significant dictator of all time. The loser of each battle is eliminated from the tournament. The winner remains in the contest to be named history's biggest dictator. Bonjour, Uncle Ian. Up first is Charlemagne, a name we all know, but few know a lot about. How did he conquer Western Europe? Uncle Ian, please tell us about Charlemagne. Charlemagne, or to give it his anglicised name, Charles the Great, born 748, died 814. His grandfather was Charles Martel. His father was Pepin, known to history as Pepin the Short. He is most famous for having been recognised as King of the Franks in 751 by the Pope. It was actually a bit of a promotion for Pepin the Short. Previous role had been Mayor of the Palace, which in these days we'd call a Chief of Staff role. The previous dynasty was the Merovingians, guess it's fair to say they were starting to run out of steam by the middle of the 8th century and one of their kings actually decided to move himself into a monastery so in lieu of the power vacuum Pepin the Short asked the Pope what should happen and the Pope said I think you're king now. So who were the Franks? They originated in what we would now call northern and western Germany. They expanded into Gaul what we'd call modern day France under the Merovingian dynasty. That that had been founded by Clovis in the late 5th century. We don't remember Clovis today, but we do remember all of the French kings named Louis, and that's where the name Louis came from. The geographical coverage of the Franks helps explain certain place names which aren't actually in France. Um, for example, Franconia and Frankfurt both in modern-day Germany, because they had been in Frankish territory in the first millennium AD. Now, we do need to be careful about names. Charlemagne had a great-grandfather, father, son, and grandson, all named Pippin, and a grandfather, son, and grandson, all named Charles. It does remind me a little bit about our talk about the Caesars, where everybody, or at least the men, had Gaius as a first name. 
That's like the great boxer George Foreman, who had five sons and named them all George just in case. Look, I wasn't. I'm not up with my uh, with my 1970s boxing questions, but that's uh, that's extremely impressive. It certainly makes it a lot easier when you're calling them for dinner. You've got Spotty George, you've got Tall George, you've got uh, George wearing a blue T-shirt. I don't know how that works. We don't know a great deal about Charlemagne's birth. We do uh, know he was born somewhere in northwest Europe, possibly illegitimate. In 768, Charlemagne became king of the Franks. So that's at the age of 20. He was tall, very tall for his times, um, at least 1.84 metres tall, known for his yellow gold hair and beard. Unlike most dictators and, and kings of Europe who wore ostentatious clothing, Charlemagne dressed very modestly. A man of the people, Charlemagne. Charlemagne was very religious. His father had seen himself as subservient to papal authority. The popes presented themselves as the successors to the Western Roman Empire. That, that had collapsed in the late 5th century. The popes were quite happy to take the high religious office that the Caesars had held, even to the extent of appropriating the term Pontifex Maximus, or high, high priest as we'd know it. Charlemagne's father, Pepin, had helped establish the Papal States as a geographical entity within the Italian peninsula, and he provided the required military backing to ensure that the Papal States were able to remain independent from neighbouring kingdoms. Charlemagne continued this support and, in his own right, took the throne of the Lombards in northern Italy in 774. Prior to that, almost annually, the Pope was writing to the king of the Franks saying, hey, the Lombards are at it again, you need to send some troops. Yeah, the Lombards loved an invasion of the Papal States. It was their favourite thing to do at the time. Lombardy is northern Italy, and they kept coming down into Rome. The Pope's going, can you please stop this? And the Lombards wouldn't stop, they refused to stop. They kept writing to Charlemagne, who kept coming across from France to sort them out, and eventually just invaded Lombardy because it was easier that way. Well, if nothing else, it cut down on the paperwork. Charlemagne came to see himself in religious terms, as a successor to the Old Testament's King David, and also to Constantine, who'd become the first Roman emperor to convert to Christianity. Regular campaigns on the borders of his kingdom, the Saxons in the east, and he certainly saw it as his mission to convert the Saxons, the Saracens in the Mediterranean, the Moors in Spain, pretty constant war, but when you look at the size of the Frankish Empire, perhaps that's not surprising that you're going to upset someone on the borders. At its height, the Kingdom of the Franks covered modern-day France, northern Spain, northern Italy, Switzerland, Austria, Hungary, Germany, and the Low Countries. This was the most unified that Western Europe had been since the height of the Roman Empire. It's incredible, really. The world was larger then. It's the 700s. There's no ease of communication or transport. And, and not just to conquer it, Scott, but to maintain it. Yeah, that's the hard part. <laughs> yeah, and it was maintained till well after his death. In the 790s, Charlemagne set up his headquarters in Aachen, which is near the German border with the Low Countries. Aachen is actually a spa town, and the, the word has the same derivation as our word aqua. Militarily, his armies are known for having used what was then the newfangled iron weapons, much more lethal than the bronze weapons that preceded them. And also, they fought on horseback, but the cavalry had a lot more flexibility due to the introduction of what sounds simple to us, the introduction of the stirrup, which meant that the soldiers on horseback could stand on horseback, giving them a height advantage, 
both in terms of against their immediate imp- opponent, but also a height advantage for seeing further on the battlefield. The stirrup sounds a, a simple thing today, but it was first widely used by Charlemagne's armies, and it was a great help against his enemies. The dynasty became known as the Carolingians. The Carolingian Renaissance is known for art, music, literary works, and especially the religious manuscripts in, written in the style known as Carolingian minuscule. Under Charlemagne, education expanded. Um, now, sources do differ on his own literacy, most likely that he was at least to a basic level able to write Latin, especially if the Pope was going to keep sending him letters. The monasteries, which had previously been a closed shop, became more widely used as libraries and also as schools for the sons of aristocrats. Now, even though education expanded under Charlemagne, Scott, I'm sorry to say there's no record of Charlemagne receiving any award from the United Nations for that. (laughs) Another dictator to unjustly miss out an award from the UN. I'd read that Charlemagne was basically illiterate. The sources do differ. Funnily enough, he ordered the creation of a universal system of writing. His people invented capital letters and introduced spaces between words. Now, maybe this is one of those inventions that seems obvious after it's done, but it sounds like they were pretty silly not to have the word gaps to begin with. And in terms of modernization, he's done quite well. He's also standardized currency to use for trade because the big achievement isn't conquering this land. We've seen conquerors come and go. But what he's able to do is create a successful administration, an integrated Western Europe with standardised currency for trade. It's the EU of the 700s. Now, we also have to say it wasn't all pretty. If you were captured by Charlemagne's armies, you were either sold into slavery or if you were lucky enough to get a peace treaty, you were converted at the point of a sword. He was quite harsh on the Saxons. He ordered the massacre of Verdun in 782, massacring 4,500 Saxons, women and children included, of course. It's such an emotionally resonant historical event. The Nazis used it in their wartime propaganda to inspire hatred of the French. That's 1,150 years later, the Germans are referencing that massacre to get the German people against the French, which unfortunately doesn't take much. Charlemagne was on more than one occasion brutal in response to any conquered peoples whose Christianity wavered or lapsed. So the Saxons went backwards and forwards a few times saying yes and then stopped when he wasn't looking and then he came back and reconverted them. So it took them a little while before they realised that he was quite serious about it. Yes, the Saxons were adherents of the Norse religion. They worshipped Thor and Odin. But Charlemagne kept coming up and saying, have you heard of Jesus Christ? Uh, A door knocker with an army. He's responsible for the Christian conversion of Europe. In 800, Pope Leo crowned him as the first Holy Roman Emperor. It's a huge deal. He did this to recognise the support which Charlemagne and the Franks had provided to the papacy and were expected to continue to give. Apparently, or so the story goes, Charlemagne was taken by surprise at the coronation. He just happened to be in Rome and the Pope on Christmas Day said, I've got a ceremony you've got to be at and crowned him as the brand new title Holy Roman Emperor. And Uncle Ian, I know you're a big fan of titles. He gets a new title when he's crowned emperor. Here it is. Charles, most serene, Augustus, crowned by God, the great, peaceful emperor, ruling the Roman Empire. I'm not sure if he can call himself a peaceful emperor after Verdun. 
But the references there to Augustus, very clear link, going back 800 years to the formation of Rome as an empire, and, and Pope Leo was very keen that that be seen to continue, not just so that Charlemagne would continue to support the papacy, but so that he would continue his Christianizing ways. Now, the Holy Roman Empire lasted for over 1,000 years, just. What do we know about Charlemagne's family life? I think it was pretty busy. He had at least 18 children, which involved eight different wives slash mistresses. Now, Scott, it's not in the class of Idi Amin. However, for the times, it's fair to say he was long-lived and prolific. His descendants include members of European dynasties such as the Habsburgs in Austria, the Capetians in France, and the Plantagenets in medieval England. And in fact, people with a Western European background, there's very strong possibility that they're descended from Charlemagne. Yes, he had a lot of kids. His firstborn, Pepin, in particular, had a rough time. There's a lot of Pepins. As you remember, the grandfather, the uncle, and now Charlemagne's son is given the name. Pepin is a hunchback, and he's told he's not up to scratch, according to his father, and he's told he's not going to inherit the throne. And not only does he do that, but Charlemagne also renames his fourth son Pepin. <laughs> Imagine that. You're so hated that he's chosen another kid and said that he's the new Pepin because he reckons you can't live up to the family name. Oh, that's ruthless. As a result, the original Pepin tries to murder Charlemagne. He's, he's unsuccessful. And uncharacteristically, Charlemagne shows mercy and sends him off to live at a monastery. I think he got off a bit lightly. So it is interesting, Scott, you mentioned Pepin the Hunchback, Charlemagne's son. So we've got Pepin's father, who was Pepin the Short, or sometimes called Pepin the Brief. We don't know his exact height, but I'm suspecting it was a lot shorter than 1.84 metres. In the year 813, Charlemagne, at the age of 65, named his only surviving legitimate son as heir. And upon Charlemagne's peaceful death... In 814, Louis the Pious became emperor and ruled until the year 840 and maintained the boundaries of the empire. It's time to introduce our next dictator, Napoleon Bonaparte, who ruled France and plenty of Europe from 1799 to 1815. We're going to answer some pressing questions. Was he short? Was he a warmonger? Was he even French? And as an adult, Napoleon was impatient. He could not stand insults. He hated to lose and he cheated at cards. He had a superb memory and an unhealthy, crazed work ethic with incredible focus that allowed him to dart between supply line strategy, politics, and eventually running a country. In battle, he was an inspiring leader who fought beside his men. He always gave credit for the victory to his men who loved him for it. Born in 1769 on the Mediterranean island of Corsica to a respectable Corsican family. They were nobles in Corsica, pretty much peasants by French standards. Corsica had just fought off the Italian city-state of Genoa to become independent for one year until the Kingdom of France conquered Corsica. So Napoleon was a French citizen after the conquest, but not really French. He grew up speaking Corsican. His second language was Italian, not French. And his name was Napoleone de Bonaparte. He eventually changed his name to sound more French. My Italian is much better than my French. Uncle <laughs> Ian. Uh, last time I was in French, I went to a baker and I said, Je suis un croissant, which means 
I am a croissant. <laughs> that's right. That that's like when JFK said, "Ich bin ein Berliner." I am a Berliner. Yeah, I am a sausage. <laughs> he, he is a sausage, JFK. All right. Corsica was poor and more egalitarian than mainland France. His father wanted the French feudal system to see the Bonapartes as nobles. And so he became a French politician and managed to get Napoleon into the Brienne Military School. And at nine years old, Napoleon had to learn French just to attend. He finished his military schooling in 1785. Most importantly, the most important thing that you need to know, that he wrote a romance novel just like our good friend Saddam Hussein. And he actually wore poison around his neck at all times, just in case he was captured. So now in 1989, Napoleon actually fought against France for Corsican independence, but fell out with the resistance leader, Pasquale Paoli. Uh, Pasquale hated Napoleon because Napoleon's father abandoned the cause to become a French politician. So he, he distrusted Napoleon. And 1789 was also the year of the French Revolution which was an ongoing series of uprisings and coups that eventually guillotined the king, ended feudalism, and established liberté, égalité, fraternité, liberty, equality, and fraternity, as its governing principles. The revolution produced the terror in which the leader of the new government, Maximilien Robespierre, and his committee of public safety was not committed to public safety. <laughs> they killed tens of thousands of French people for alleged treason, which really undermined their Enlightenment credentials. What I really like about the guillotine, and I'm not the first person to say this, is that it really sums up the French Revolution because it's modern, it's scientific, it's efficient, and it killed tens of thousands of people. And, and it also enabled it to be very much a spectator sport as well. <laughs> so watching people get guillotined in the in the public square, there's there's talk about women bringing their knitting to sit and watch the people being guillotined. So the ideas of the revolution start to grow on Napoleon. He writes a pamphlet praising the revolution and its ideals. It gets him noticed by Robespierre's brother, and Napoleon is assigned to lead the siege of Toulon. So in this siege, the, the British had with French citizens who were loyal to the king, they had taken over the French city of Toulon and Napoleon's job was to win it back. And it is a difficult assignment and they're poorly equipped, but Napoleon just refuses to fight. He demands more cannons from Paris, he finds more in the countrysides and even manufactures his own firepower. He takes the two hills that overlook the port and destroys the British fleet. It's a huge victory for Napoleon. And what's, I think, even more incredible about that, Scott, is that... At the age of 24, Napoleon had this command and he was already a brigadier general. So the Committee for Public Safety see him as a hero. So then he goes back to Paris and saves the government from an attempted counter-revolution by a Parisian mob. Napoleon believed that you could not give the mob an inch, otherwise he would end up beheaded like the king. That metaphor is a bit ironic given Napoleon's later strong support for what we now know as the metric system. He famously broke up the mob with grape shot. Grape shot is, imagine putting 20 ball bearings into a cannon. It turns the cannon into a gigantic shotgun, spraying grape shot. He kills 300 people that day, and so the mob decided to go home. And he therefore suppressed the mob and the attempted overthrow of the government. In 1796, he married Josephine, who herself, Uncle Ian, was very lucky to be alive. 
So Josephine was married to a revolutionary who had himself lost his life during the terror. He'd been executed in 1793, if I remember correctly. Yes, her first husband was guillotined by Robespierre during the terror, and she was also arrested and scheduled to be guillotined. But then Robespierre himself was guillotined just in time, and she was released. And in turn, the fall of Robespierre actually put Napoleon in danger for a little while because of his close relationship with the Robespierre family. Yeah, so his marriage was not romantic. She let her dog sleep in the bed with them on their wedding night, and the dog bit him on the leg. There's this myth that he said, not deny Josephine to deny her advances, but no one is quite sure where the line comes from. Unless that's what he said after the dog bit him on the leg. (laughs) That would be fair enough. So the line is a myth. In reality, he was more keen on her than she was on him. Uh, The marriage was based on her political connections. She had a lover and he had 22 mistresses. Two days after the wedding, Napoleon is promoted. Two days after the wedding, Napoleon is promoted to lead the French army in Italy. They are fighting the Austrians, whose king doesn't like the idea of a revolution that beheads royalty spreading across Europe. So despite being outnumbered, he defeats the Austrians. He kicks them out of Italy, and they sue for peace before Napoleon's army reaches Vienna. It's here Napoleon gets his nickname. Uncle Ian, what's his nickname? The Little Corporal. That's right, Le Petit Corporal. And and partially, that was recognition not just because of his height or lack thereof, but also the fact that he did genuinely mix with the troops. He's not a corporal, but they've demoted him with the nickname because he was so hands-on. He was moving cannons around and arranging every tiny detail of the attack. As he says, if you want a thing done well, do it yourself. So they called him corporal as a joke. And interestingly, Scott, you mentioned cannons. His specialty, if you like, at the military school was artillery, partially because he was too short to lead an infantry brigade or even to look imposing on a horse. So that's one of the reasons why he specialised in artillery when he was at military school. Petite in French means little, but it's also a term of endearment. And so this helps create the myth that he was short and the idea of Napoleon syndrome. He was five foot six, which is average for the time for being a military man. He was certainly not an imposing figure. Uncle Ian, while we're on myths, there was also a myth that he's afraid of cats. Not the case, however... He did have an incident with rabbits when on a hunting trip. Napoleon, he decides he wants to go on a hunting trip. He wants to shoot some rabbits. Okay. His people mistakenly procured tame rabbits instead of wild ones. So the tame rabbits were released for the shoot. And approximately 1,000 rabbits all mistook Napoleon for the man who feeds them. So they swarm him. And Napoleon hits the legs. He runs off. He's chased by a sea of hungry rabbits. He fled in his horse-drawn carriage, (laughs) throwing rabbits out the window as he drove off. This incredible military emperor figure just legging it from rabbits. So after the victory, not against the rabbits, he lost that one. I mean the victory against the Austrians. After the victory, the French government notices Napoleon's popularity, and so they get a bit worried. So they send him off to conquer Egypt and to disrupt British trade. He conquers Egypt easily, and there's a few myths that come out of the trip as well. There's a myth that he knocked off the nose of the Sphinx. This is not true. The Sufi Muslims get the blame for that one. In Egypt, he discovered the Rosetta Stone. He stole a lot of artifacts. He grew interested in Islam there, and he considered converting himself. He changed his mind when he learned that Muslims don't drink alcohol, (laughs) which is exactly the same reason that Vladimir the Great decided against converting. The Muslims are really losing a lot of converts with their teetotaling. So while he's in 
Egypt, the British destroy the French fleet. So his whole army is stuck in Egypt. He would later paint the expedition as an adventure rather than a failed conquest. Propaganda is very important and Napoleon knew that. And the British also know the value of propaganda. In Egypt, Napoleon learns that his wife Josephine was having an affair and he writes a distraught private letter to his brother about her affair. And the letter was intercepted by the British who published it in the newspapers. Very harsh. So here's when things get dictatorial. In 1799, Napoleon was asked to back a coup, which would overthrow another revolutionary government and put Emmanuel Sayez in charge with Napoleon as his henchman. The plotters needed the support of a general to provide military backing of the coup. And Napoleon wasn't the first general picked to be the sword wielded by the plotters of the coup, but their preferred options either refused to take part or died in battle before it took place. The official plan for the coup was to claim to be defending France from a left-wing coup and then demand to be given emergency powers. So Napoleon agrees to the plan, but he plotted a coup within the coup to make himself first consul. So just to sum up, Napoleon planned a coup within another coup which claimed to be saving France from a coup. So the coup was an absolute mess. Napoleon threatened the legislative assemblies and was attacked by its members and was punched in the face. His brother Lucien ran out and gave a fantastic speech to persuade the soldiers to arrest the assembly. But the soldiers feared that they were being asked to support a tyrant. So Lucien's very switched on. He realized this and he took Napoleon's sword and he yelled, I swear I will stab my own brother in the heart if he ever violates the liberty of a Frenchman. That seemed to do the trick. Napoleon became first consul and he consolidated all power by bringing all responsibility under the authority of the first consul, which was him. Uncle Ian, what is the significance of that title, first consul? So we met that term when we visited ancient Rome. Elected annually by the people were the two consuls and they took office in Rome for the next 500 years until the start of the empire. So very significant that that's the term they chose. Very good. Both of our dictators invoking the Roman Empire. That's got to be added to dictator bingo, invoking the Roman Empire. That's Charlemagne, Napoleon, in addition to Mussolini and Ivan the Terrible. Napoleon crafted a new constitution, giving almost all power to the executive. So this was a clever trick because... The public were tired of all the chaos, right? They're tired of the revolutions. They're not interested in politics anymore. They just want to live their lives. Napoleon sold the new constitution to the people with the message, either we keep this new constitution or you can have more uncertainty and chaos. So Napoleon's constitution won the referendum vote. There was widespread fraud. For example, they added half a million votes by declaring all military personnel are loyal and therefore would vote in favour of the government's proposal. Again, cuts down on the paperwork. The referendum was won with 99.94% of the vote. Bradman's batting average. (laughs) Classic Uncle Ian cricket reference. Don Bradman is an iconic Australian cricketer. Uh, That number, 99.94, is the exact same as, again, Saddam Hussein. Um, Yeah, I think that's part of the uh, dictator's handbook. We're, of course, breaking that down to uh, dictator bingo. So now Napoleon is first consul, a.k.a. dictator, and he has the Mona Lisa hung in his bedroom. He's got good taste. 
Now is a good time to talk about Napoleon's incredible achievements. He created massive modernization changes, cementing the high ideals of the revolutions and got rid of all those silly things like 10-hour days. He ended the tyranny, ended the Inquisition, banned torture, ended feudalism, introduced modern secular education and the metric system. He established the Napoleonic Code, a consolidation of all French laws into one set of accessible laws. This is considered his greatest achievement. The Napoleonic Code is still used throughout Western Europe and the American state of Louisiana. Napoleon's revolution introduced meritocracy, ending the idea that certain people deserve easier access to powerful positions without earning them. So thank Napoleon next time you're under the care of a competent surgeon. Napoleon also abolished anti-Semitism, allowing Jews to own property, giving them freedom of worship. He ended slavery he conquered, such as Malta, and he mandated driving on the right-hand side of the road, supposedly because most people are right-handed and that would deter fighting. Unconquered Britain and the Commonwealth still drive on the left. Looking back, he did make mistakes. He sold Louisiana to America. Women's rights went backwards under Napoleon. He once said, Women are nothing but machines for producing children. That's harsh. He even attempted to bring slavery back to the French Caribbean. Haiti didn't like the idea of this and became independent in 1804. In 1800, he's forced to fight a second coalition that is formed against France. Napoleon shocks his enemies by marching an army through the Alps. As Napoleon says, impossible is a word to be found only in the dictionary of fools. He was the first person to do this in a thousand years. Uncle Ian, who was the last person to do it? That was Charlemagne. In, in fact, on his way to fight those pesky Lombards that we heard about earlier. The other person to manage it was Hannibal, who did it with elephants, which is even more impressive. Yeah, so Hannibal was a Carthaginian general. Carthage is North Africa. And this is in the 200s BC, so he was an enemy of Rome. And there's, in fact, a very famous painting of Napoleon painted on a horse, but in actual fact, he made the traverse on a donkey. As Napoleon says, what is history but a fable agreed upon? The painting of Napoleon gloriously looking on this horse as he crosses the Alps, has the names Hannibal and Carolus Magnus engraved in the ground that Napoleon is traversing, so literally to be seen as being in the footsteps of Hannibal and Charlemagne. Napoleon wins the war of the Second Coalition and creates peace in Europe. In 1804, Napoleon crowns himself emperor. It's the um, president for life of the 1800s he literally crowns himself so traditionally the pope places the crown on the head of the ruler instead napoleon was handed the crown and he placed it on his own head and the, the crown was actually deliberately designed to be a replica of the crown that charlemagne had worn napoleon placing the crown on his own head symbolizes napoleon's ascension from humble beginnings and it represents the meritocracy of post-revolution france he's his own man he's the self-made man placing the crown on his own head no one else got him there but himself napoleon even changes the constitution so he can name his heirs ruler in order to protect the values of the revolution so he says <laughs> so remember the country that beheaded its king now has hereditary rule I have to name my son heir to protect the values of the revolution. He didn't call himself a king. He named himself emperor. 
he's supposed to have said, I am not the heir of Louis, I am the heir of Charlemagne. In 1805, he fought the Third Coalition against him. So that included the Russian Empire, the British Empire, the Austrians, and the Swedish. Napoleon moves his army quickly. He's a master organizer, and his supply lines are perfect. He won the Battle of Austerlitz, which is considered his greatest military achievement. It really was an unbelievable victory, fighting with fewer men from the low ground. The enemy soldiers flee over a frozen lake, and he shoots the ice and drowns the soldiers. That's great dictator stuff right there. This victory kills off the Holy Roman Empire. Napoleon, doing it all. In 1806, the Fourth Coalition of Prussia, Saxony, Russia, Sweden, and Britain were beaten by Napoleon. They signed the Treaty of Tilsit, all except the British sign. And when Napoleon, <laughs> when Napoleon meets with Tsar Alexander of Russia to discuss the treaty, he became very fond of the Tsar. They became quite fond of each other. He told his wife, if Alexander were a woman, I would make him my mistress. There was a bit of a bromance going on there for a while. So let's have a look at where we are. Napoleon now runs the entire European continent directly or through puppets and allies. And brothers. Yes, and brothers. So his brother Joseph, king of Naples, 1806 to 1808, and then he gets promoted to be king of Spain. His youngest brother, Jerome, becomes king of Westphalia. We would now know Westphalia as northeastern Germany between 1807 and 1813. There'd be a test later, Scott, on all these dates. <laughs> His brother, Louis, was king of Holland, 1806 to 1810 and a little bit of trivia about um, his youngest brother Jerome he had a grandson named Charles who grew up in the United States and ended up being the Attorney General of the United States under President Theodore Roosevelt in the early years of the 20th century CJ Bonaparte. Again, I can't remember which brother says this but at one of the coronations Napoleon's brother turns to him and says if only dad could see us now. And he's right, these kids have come quite far from living on the insignificant island of Corsica to now running all of Europe. That's a good kleptocracy he's got going. Napoleon's empire covers France, Italy, Switzerland, Belgium, the Netherlands, Western Germany, Poland, Denmark are satellite states, and he subdued the Austrians and the Russians so thoroughly that he's controlling their foreign policy. He uses this to implement his famous continental system, which forced all nations he had defeated to embargo goods from Britain. Britain didn't sign the treaty, so he wants to punish them. And so Napoleon's got two problems. In 1805, the British destroy the French fleet at the Battle of Trafalgar. So if you've been to Trafalgar Square, that's what that's commemorating. And the other problem is that there's one part of the continent he doesn't control, the Iberian Peninsula. So that's Spain and Portugal. So in 1808, Napoleon invades Spain and Portugal to extend the trade embargo against Britain. Because the issue is that the British can get their goods into Europe through Spain. So now it's 1812. Napoleon is dealing with an uprising in Spain. And he's frustrated because those Russians keep violating his embargo against the British. So he decides to invade Russia, which never works out well for any dictator. The Russians know the French are far from home, so they retreat and burn every farm and village so the French have no shelter and food. So Napoleon reaches Moscow, and the Russians have burned Moscow down too. <laughs> Those Russians are just mad, aren't they? 
So Napoleon has to retreat in minus 30 degree cold. His army die of typhus, starvation, suicide. Men's lips froze shut. He went to Russia with 500,000 men, Uncle Ian, and he left with 40,000. And Tsar Alexander declares of Napoleon that the spell is broken. And, and he's right. France was weakened. So Prussia joins with Austria, Sweden, Russia, Great Britain, Spain, and Portugal to form the Sixth Coalition, who finally defeated Napoleon in 1814. Only took six goes. So Napoleon's exiled to the tiny island of Elba off the coast of Italy. Now, remember how I told you Napoleon wore poison around his neck? He drank it on Elba, but it was old, so it just made him really sick. So does that mean the poison didn't have a use-by date? Always check the use-by date, mate. So that should be the end of the story. It sounds like the end of the story to me, Scott. But there's a plot twist. Napoleon escapes from Elba and sails to France. He makes a comeback, riding around France to military bases, picking up loyal divisions. Louis XVIII, who is the new king installed by the European powers, sent a regiment of soldiers to kill him. This regiment ended up joining Napoleon. There's two versions of this story, both are great. He either ran out in front of them and said, If you want to shoot your emperor, here I am. Or he just walked up to this division of men sent here to arrest him. He just casually strolled up to them, arms behind his back, inspected them. Hey, how are you going? How are you feeling? Are you getting enough rations? Are you doing okay? And looked at them up and down and said, all right, off we go. Acted like a general, acted like their leader, and they just went along with it. So now Napoleon is dictator of France once again. So have a guess what happens. A seventh coalition forms to defeat him. Napoleon, to the shock of all military historians, loses the Battle of Waterloo. Glory is fleeting, but obscurity is forever. Napoleon lost the battle, partly as a result of the Prussians, who Napoleon assumed wouldn't be able to back up after their last battle. Napoleon was off his game that day. There's rumours his hemorrhoids slowed him down. He did have hemorrhoids, but he cured them by placing leeches on his anus, which unlike every other application of leeches in medical history, might actually work. Yeah, look, I, I don't have medical training, but I'd be checking the use-by date on the leeches. <laughs> so the Duke of Wellington, who commanded the British forces in the Battle of Waterloo, that finally defeated Napoleon, said it was the nearest run thing you ever saw. Uncle, this guy, the Duke of Wellington, was obsessed with his victory over Napoleon. He collected Napoleon's swords and hired Napoleon's cook. He seduced two of Napoleon's mistresses after Waterloo, one of which is quoted as saying she preferred her time with Wellington. He had a statue of Napoleon taken to his house in England. Wellington even received a sexy topless portrait from Napoleon's sister. How good is the sexy topless portrait? The original Snapchat. So this time, Napoleon is exiled to the island of St. Helena which is in the middle of nowhere. It's in the South Atlantic Ocean, somewhere between Africa and Brazil. So he's not rowing back to France. Napoleon died five years later on the 5th of May, 1821. So Napoleon was 51 when he died. Not sure of the exact cause of death. I think it's depending which autopsy you believe. It could have been arsenic poisoning, but gastric cancer was also present in other members of his family. So that could have been the cause. But... uh, 51 seems relatively young, and in fact, there are members of his family who believed that he'd been 
denied provisions and medical treatment while on St. Helena. It could have actually been some deliberate component to his death. Yes, that's right. So officially it's stomach cancer, possibly arsenic poisoning, but it is the 1800. Arsenic was found in everything. They actually found traces of arsenic in Napoleon's wallpaper. During Napoleon's autopsy, Napoleon's penis was cut off and given to a Corsican priest. It's been displayed in museums, but has shriveled up a fair bit. Fittingly, a urologist from New Jersey bought the penis at auction in 1977. This urologist must be very enthusiastic about his speciality. I assume it came with a certificate of authenticity. They can trace the purchases down the line throughout the years. I hope there's not a proctologist somewhere with a piece of Charlemagne. Uncle Ian, how much would you pay for Napoleon's penis? Yeah, look, I'm, I'm going to say it's a niche market. It was bought by a urologist. Who else would be interested? This bloke just loves the urinary system. A million people attended Napoleon's funeral down Champs-Élysées. And in 1840, he was reburied in Les Invalides Military Hospital and Museum. To a degree, his legacy has been tarnished by those who see Napoleon through the lens of World War II. He, you know, Napoleon's depicted as the forerunner to Adolf Hitler. Hitler would love that. Napoleon's grave was visited by Hitler, who declared it was the highlight of his life. Napoleon was not a genocidal maniac. He had more wars declared against him than he declared himself. Napoleon is likely the greatest military leader in modern history. He won more battles than Alexander the Great, Hannibal and Caesar combined. His wars killed three million military men and a million civilians. And he must be a big deal, (laughs) Uncle Ian, because in France, it's illegal to name a pig Napoleon. If only George Orwell had known that. Animal Farm. I think it's also worth mentioning that perhaps unintentionally, Napoleon had a big part to play in the future shape of Europe. Both modern-day Italy and modern-day Germany were made possible by Napoleon's conquests and his reorganisation of the small principalities in those two countries. The larger administrative units were actually much easier to unify so that by the 1870s, both Germany and Italy came into being as countries in in their own right. All right, it's time to declare a winner. Only one dictator can go through to the next round. A few similarities here. Both created a united Western Europe. Both were modernisers. Disruption of family life so we could have an heir and successor. And they were both very single-minded what they wanted to achieve and obviously both very inspirational to their people. And what's incredible about these two, actually, is that Both these figures shaped not just France, not just Europe, but the world, because the modern world is built on European traditions. Christianity produces the Enlightenment values of democracy, liberalism, and meritocracy, which dominate much of the world today. So the case for Napoleon winning this round is that he does very well on dictator bingo. He's got ruthless suppression of dissent with the grape shot, the disrupted family life, The declaring himself president for life, a.k.a. emperor, the very fraudulent election, invading most of Europe. And the the propaganda, quite a big one, the way in which he proclaimed his victories. You, You mentioned the victory in Egypt, or the result in Egypt, sorry. He won the Battle of the Pyramids, but then lost the Battle of the Nile. He managed to spin that back to the French people without damaging his reputation. And in that respect, he's taking a leaf out of Julius Caesar's book. We talked about the way in which Caesar wrote the Gallic Wars for Roman consumption, and Napoleon certainly learnt from Caesar in that regard. 
I acknowledge Charlemagne's legacy in terms of the Christianization of Europe and the spread of education and literacy throughout what was then called the Frankish Empire. However, we said at the outset of this series that long-lasting significance was a key factor. And we look at what Napoleon was able to achieve, and I can't go past him. Yes, I agree. I think Napoleon has to win. In just 51 years, Napoleon has the most extraordinary life of any figure I can think of, with the possible exception of Winston Churchill. So congratulations to Napoleon. Napoleon remains in the contest to be crowned history's biggest dictator. Next week, we have a religious theme. We have Pope Alexander VI up against Ayatollah Khomeini. Two cracking dictators. I'm sure you know Pope Alexander is the Borgia Pope. They made that excellent TV show about him. If you think the church has done some dodgy stuff recently, wait till you hear what this bloke got up to. Ayatollah Khomeini is going to be great value as well because the revolution in Iran is the basis for Margaret Atwood's book, The Handmaid's Tale. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Uncle Ian. Thanks, Scott. See you next time.